Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. After a brief hiatus for Thanksgiving dinner, I sat down with David Norman to discuss the New York Impressionist and Modern sales. David, we've just witnessed, uh, by my numbers, a little over $620 million in Impressionist and Modern sales at uh, all three auction houses. And I wanted to get your sense after, you know, digesting your Thanksgiving turkey. You know, how do you feel about the, the New York sales cycle? Oh, great to talk to you, Marion. And yeah, it's a lot less fattening uh digesting auction numbers uh, than turkeys. You know, I feel good overall about the market because taken in total with the post-war sales, a uh, tremendous amount of art was once again absorbed. Uh, there was a high volume, there was high value, and in many cases there were record prices and there was really feverish bidding. However, the impressionist and modern market continues to underperform against the post-war art. Both Sotheby's and Christie's evening sales came in at a few percentages, you know, below the cumulative pre-sale low estimate. When you total up those works that sold at the low estimate or below or even bought in, you know, you might even be approaching half of these sales, kind of falling on the, you know, the weak performing spectrum. Uh, and then there also was really quite fascinating how different the two sales were. And I know we'll get into that between the, you know, much more heavily weighted classic impressionist sale of Christie's uh, with a lot less fireworks and the Sotheby sale that was built through German Austrian art, Fauvism, Expressionism, uh, which really ignited a lot of bidding and yet, in the end of the day, the sales performances were pretty close. Um, Sotheby's had an even higher unsold rate. Each house had a had a painful turkey: the uh, the Van Gogh at Christie's and the uh, the Marston Hartley at Sotheby's. Uh, but you know, overall, I would say the market continues to absorb a lot of art. Uh, there were a lot less stars this season. But that's understandable. You don't get that many Rockefellers and Bass sales and all the major collections that have been up in the past. Um, But we'll get to it later when you start looking at all the the financial mechanisms and machinations. I think it becomes both a much more complex and interesting picture. So let's go to, before we get there, uh, just sort of the broad... Uh, uh, pillars of this market are uh, Monet and Picasso. Uh, You know, uh, 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 there was a kind of interesting shift here in this one of the first seasons in a long time where almost all of the Picassos, I guess really all but one uh, in the evening sale, were at uh, Christie's and Sotheby's pretty much eschewed uh, Picasso as a... um, uh, as an artist. Uh, and, you know, the Monet and Picasso also happen to be the kinds of works that draw in Asian buyers. I know that the the Van Gogh that uh, was also somewhat pitched to uh, a- 
Asian buyers. Uh, one, let's just you know talk a little bit about the Picassos that were uh, on offer. In my uh, charts here, the ones that got uh, bidding were, you know, much cheaper ones, you know, the bidding in excess of the high estimate. So that the one at, at uh, uh, Sotheby's, the the very un Picasso like um, iris picture, uh, you know, a nice sort of still life of these, you know, pot of yellow irises, uh, and the portrait of uh, Francois Gillot that I think might have been a work on paper uh, that was at uh, uh, Christie's. Um, you know, right. those were the ones that uh, uh, performed the best of the Picassos against their their estimates. Do you, do you feel like that's um, you know a, a reflection of the valuations in the market, and that you know because because Picasso is the premium name and estimates are tr generally pushed pretty hard, that's why we're seeing the relative underperformance there. Well, um, you know, I I agree with that, and then would. Add a few more observations. The, you know, early 1901 uh, Picasso still life that that really did so well in the beginning of the Sotheby's sale. That was a part of this whole collection of uh, faux-oriented works, and I think the drive and the bidding was a result of just the attractiveness of the picture and the vibrant color. Um, and also, you, you mentioned that it was the lower performing pieces that uh, did well. A broad comment, as I looked at both sales, uh, those works estimated at four to six million or less did relatively much better than the works valued at five to seven million or more. The lower valued works more often went above estimate or within. Uh, while the higher estimated works often went, you know, within or below. Uh, so, so in one sense, there's also this uh, segmentation of price. Uh, and I think the pieces that we did see come up, they were either perhaps too traditional now uh, for today's taste, like the beautiful large neoclassical pastel from the Clapper collection at uh, Christie's that made a Hammer of 10.5, but you know, a generation ago, I, I think that would have been relatively twice that, you know, in in, in today's dollars. Uh, and is is that because the neoclassical work is just out of favor? This is Femme Acudi that you're referring to, right? Uh, yes, exactly. I I would say most buyers uh, are looking for vibrant, more aggressive, uh, very graphically strong, uh, more highly contrasted tonalities. And that tends to go more toward the 30s and on. Uh, you get something like this still like just because it was, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a juicy, enjoyable picture. Um, but some of the Picasso's at Christie's, uh, the uh, woman with the blue veil above her head, uh, you know, we're a bit more old-fashioned in taste. Uh, there was a 1937 Marie Therese estimated at 15 to 20 million. It, it bought in, but it had just been bought in the market in 2013. And I think that's an example of the, the perils of trying to come back to market a little too uh, quickly. So the ones that were up were just not as thrilling. The you know, large uh, 1931 bust of Marie Therese, that big painting at Christie's called La Lampe. Uh, 
uh, that had been at Sotheby's, I think 2007, eight, it failed to sell. Uh, so I actually think it did extremely well making a hammer of 26 million. And, and I that, think it was. Uh, that, that just seems to have been actually one of those interesting uh, uh, situations where everyone recognized that there were some uh, condition issues about the work, but that seems to be incorporated into the pricing. And even though it was priced well, it still seemed to, and had a um, a, a third-party guarantee, it still seemed to attract uh, uh, some bids uh, and get to a, a pretty good price. Oh, I think it was uh, an excellent price at the end of the day. It also kind of highlights, you know, uh, the idea of the use of guarantees and third-party bids. If you have a picture that is not necessarily fresh to the market, not necessarily the quintessential example, uh, then you really should try to get a guarantee uh, to put it up at auction. And the auction houses should really try to get a third-party bidder so that somebody will raise their hand you know, to start and give other bidders confidence. Uh, I know we're veering off Picasso just in this one example, but if you have something fabulous, rare, uh, for an artist with a proven market like that extraordinary Magritte portrait at, at uh, Sotheby's, um, you know, then don't take a guarantee, <laughs> get the maximum, you know, net you can get and share the buyer's premium and just trust in the quality of the work and the market's appetite for great pieces. Um, so there's also that question as if you're a seller, when do you take or not take a guarantee? Uh, and if you're a person who loves to and wants to speculate by backing guarantees, you know, when do you do it? Do you back them, you know, to help the auction house get them on consignment or do you, swoop in if you can after the catalog's out. But I, I keep going back to broad questions. I was going to say, and we can talk about that in a minute. First, let's just go through the Monet, because I think that was, um, you know, one of those places where there was more surprise uh, than anywhere else. The, the A couple of the top Monets sold uh, for a great deal of money, but below uh, their uh, estimates, the, the unstamped um, water lilies uh, at Christie's and uh, also the... Um, the young girl in the garden, uh, which I think surprised a fair number of people when it didn't sell uh, terribly well, and there was also the um, the staircase. The, these are three, you know, uh, prominent uh, uh, paintings by Monet that uh, look like they should be market friendly, and yet they were a struggle to sell. Yeah, and and in counterpoint was the extraordinary success of that Monet winter scene. But to return to your three examples, um, one, I think, is the effect of what very evidently seemed to be uh, an absence or just far fewer uh, Asian buyers and Asian bidders. I know the auction houses try to break down that they actually still had a high percentage of Asian bidders, but it was pretty clear sitting in the room watching the telephone reps uh, and also watching these big lots, they were struggling in a way I don't think they would have last year or the few years before. The Monday Water Lily, I don't find a surprise. It's, uh, it was a bit of an anemic work, and it 
really looked like uh, Adrian just got that sold to uh, the one bidder on the phone, Elaine. I was surprised that the Vettoy staircase um, didn't even sell. Uh, I think that's, again, going to be a reflection of a, a certain changing taste in terms of what people wanted Monet. Uh, you know, the winter scene was, you know, just had these very abstract, nuanced qualities. And Adrian made a point of letting us all know how much the contemporary department loved the work. So it, it had to appeal to either a, a younger group of buyers or the present group of buyers who are sort of more focused on a more modernist sensibility. Uh, so just like with Picasso, it, it segments between the earlier parts of their career, which seem to be going down, the later, more abstract parts that seem to be going up. The water lily is an exception, but I also think there's a degree of saturation. Uh, you know, a lot of water lilies have been sold of all different formats. And, uh, you know, there comes a point where, you know, you might get a, a low or a dip in terms of the demand. Um, but I'd also attribute it to just the relative uh, uh, impact of the picture desirability. So the uh, there there are a number of uh, Monet uh, uh, snowscapes, and generally they are sort of priced in this area. I mean, it's not like anyone looked at that estimate and and said five to eight million. That's that's woefully underpriced. Let's jump in in there. And, and more importantly, it was bid up to uh, a 13.5 million hammer price, a 15.5 million uh, uh, selling pr price. Do you think that is about that particular picture? Do you think this is now going to either draw more um, uh, snowscapes onto the mar market uh, or raise the value of them? Well, they're, they're, they have been quite rare overall compared to a plentiful supply of Monet. And the interest in them, I think, does fit again with uh, buyers who are still in the Impressionist market uh, looking to find things with more abstract qualities. I mean, this, I, I know it's silly, but, you know, this Monet could hang next to a Ryman. And that probably is part of the reasons the postwar people uh, at Christie's were so excited about it. Um, and, now, you, and use that description exactly. Oh, did they really? Yeah. I didn't, uh, I, I, that was, I didn't, I didn't crit that then. I just, uh, just came to me. So, great, great uh, minds think alike. It's, uh, I'm flattered. Um, now, will it bring out more? There, there aren't that many good ones I've seen available in the marketplace. It'll certainly stimulate people to uh, consider it or it'll arm the auction houses with a great story to proactively approach people on. But I've always known, you know, beware of your successes because, you know, this is not going to translate across the board uh, to winter landscapes. You know, the the tide isn't going to raise all boats uniformly, but it is going to start to reset the owner's expectations. Uh, and I'm sure as much as it's a great story to pitch for someone to sell, it also creates a greater challenge to bring things to market at 
a reasonable estimate which will be successful again. Now that makes sense, and and it's very clear that uh, uh, Sotheby's took a, a kind of specific approach this season to you know zigging where Christie's had zagged and building a sale that was. Um, very much uh, of different sorts of material, uh, uh, you know, works by Jean Arp, all of the uh, Josephus, Josephowitz works, a lot of um, uh, German expressionist uh, uh, works, and all. I mean, it was a it was a very different sale, uh, and seemed to perform well because it was. Um, uh, I wouldn't say non-competitive, but but sort of offering a different kind of material to the market. Yeah, and I think if the Sotheby's sale was closer to the more traditional Christie's sale, that could have been much more problematic uh, for the market because we can see through both sales the struggles many of the earlier and impressionist uh, pictures had. Now, you know, I always know that the compositions of these sales are are partially providence and and then you know partially, uh, uh, you know, strategic and decided upon. And, you know, I'm sure both houses competed for uh, for some of this property. And Sotheby's got the good fortune of gaining some of these consignments. And then they wisely built on that. And I, I think had the kind of perhaps courage to not go chasing and filling up the sale with uh, a lot more impressionist pictures. Although I always wish they'd take about eight or 10 lots less each sale. They'd, uh, they'd definitely improve their selling rates. I don't know why there's always a, a run in the back that sometimes seems inevitable, but um, so, definitely. So, so one other question I wanted to ask about the sort of zigging and zagging. One of the main features of the that week was the uh, Ebsworth collection, which being a collection of American art uh, uh, split between some very prominent uh, American contemporary pictures uh, and then a great deal of what is American modern art. And that was in that particular sale, especially the evening sale. It was very hit and miss. They were, there were places where things did quite well, and there were places where um, there just clearly wasn't a taste for either that artist or that category. And at the same time, uh, Sotheby's made this big statement with the um, uh, uh, Hartley picture, uh, uh, which you know. Uh, Again, as one of those coincidences, uh, Ebsworth himself owned a picture from that series, which is one of the uh, paintings that the uh, family donated to one of the two museums he had promised works to. I can't remember whether it was Seattle or the National Gallery. Uh, uh, it leads my question, is this kind of attempt, which we've also seen Sotheby's do with Latin American uh, painters as well, to sort of reshape the modern market by including new artists? I mean, we've seen the Giorgio O'Keeffe's also uh, included in this. Do, do we think that was not successful because of the pictures or not successful because it was kind of trying to push together two things that, that don't yet necessarily uh, make a, a sort of common uh, category. And, and, uh, and Mary, you 
speaking about the those pictures that were sorted into the impressions and modern sales first, or just Ebsworth? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking. I'm I'm just thinking about the whole concept of including American moderns like O'Keefe and Hartley in. Um, uh, these impressionist and modern uh, uh, sales, whether this is something, because it didn't seem to work this season. The the O'Keeffe's sold well, per se, but below their estimates, though those might have been in the um, the contemporary sale, I can't re- remember. But there still was this sort of thing where of like trying to mix up the categories uh, didn't seem to 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 work, and that may just have been you know isolated incidents around the individual pictures, or it may have been just the discordance of having these works in in other sales. The Ebsworth is its own because it was a single owner sale. I was just using that right. as a sort of way of of thinking about. Uh, I didn't want to lay it all on the Hartley. You know, did did the Hartley <laughs> fail because it shouldn't be in a, an impressionist modern um, uh, auction? I suppose is is one question, but it seems like a lead question. Well, with regard to mixing in Latin and American and even artists like Munnings and the Sotheby's sale, that has been a question and an experiment that, you know, in my experience, goes back to the 1990s. I remember working for David Nash and, you know, and even probably a generation before him, there was always the fretting that, you know, the impressionist and early modern market's going to dry up. There won't be the supply. They're going to become the old master category, you know, of the sales. And we have to do some combination of, of expediency and strategic thinking to try to bring exciting pictures into these sales, migrating them from, from Latin and American uh, to sort of pump them up and keep them exciting. Uh, and y- you might remember Christie's tried to bifurcate the sales into 19th and 20th century, uh, and they never really catch fire. Uh, and there's a real, there was a real sort of uh, almost schizophrenia about uh, Giorgio O'Keefe. Maybe that's overly too strenuously put, but you know, in some cases they're in the impressions modern sales. In some cases they were in the uh, contemporary sales. And I think one has to be very aware of, you know, having the audience's attention. You know, there are not, you know, a large group of Latin American collectors who are necessarily regularly attending impressionist and modern sales. Uh, and the same with Americans. So. Uh, you could selectively do well if a work is of great quality, uh, but it's always been something tried to mixed results and something tried because there, you know, is this perpetual sense of urgency that the impressions modern category is going to get too tired and there's going to be a crisis of supply. So we have to expand the parameters of that as a selling category. It, it... Having put everything into one uh, week, almost uh, uh, seems like there is the um, the sort of uh, uh, desire to merge the sales even further. Uh, it's a it's a very crowded week now with trying to fit um, 
you know, uh, two or three uh, evening sales per house, uh, and then Phillips shoehorned in there as uh, as well. Uh, and and it seems like there's there's a bit of a a conflict going on whether to sort of create one big evening sale of all of the you know highest price works or somehow uh, dress up the other other ones. And it it it's kind of a fascinating. Um, you know, uh, uh, evolution uh, season by season. It doesn't necessarily go where I think we we always think it's going to go. Right. And again, I often return to supply drives a lot of this, you know, uh, happenstance versus design. And, you know, if there's a happy happenstance, you know, like in Sotheby's where they got these collections, they had something to build upon the idea of the uh, the 100th anniversary of the armistice, they they really created a great marketing tool to bring more pictures in. Whether they began this by saying, we're going to make this type of sale, my idea is that was less the case as opposed to building on some fortuitous uh, uh, circumstances. Well, you, you just brought up something that's w- worth discussing. The um, uh, Kirchner... Uh, did I think better than most people uh, expected? Uh, far better, a, far better. Uh, and the the Kokoschka did well, but probably not as well as a lot of people uh, expected. Is that just again? You know, it's the mystery of who shows up and how they're feeling that evening. Well, I, I actually I don't know if that was voiced by many. I, I, I feel the Kokoschka did extremely well, nearing $20 million or so when all is totaled in. And uh, there had not been any prices that approached that. I didn't hear of any in the private market as well. So, uh, but of course, that that seemed to be the result driven a lot by the final two bidders, Nick McLean and uh, Andrew Fabricant, you know, they they put at least about the last three and a half million dollars on it. So I, I was surprised at what it got, and actually saw that rather positively about the uh, the market because that's that's not a picture for everyone. That's a limited audience. Now the Kirchner, uh, there was a lot of. Uh, comment that that was going to be such a difficult picture to sell between all the male nudity and even though it was a, a scene of world related to World War One, so many people commented upon, you know, it gave them the impression, you know, of gas chambers during World War Two. Uh, and yet it, it was a, a really powerful picture of a great year, extremely rare, uh, very hard to get any of these types of pictures, uh, and it it really beat everyone's expectations. I I feel like I looked around the room and it was a, a sort of a degree of surprise as it clicked climbing. Well, and do we think that it's another institution? I mean, one of the important features of that is it it, it comes out of a major institution, uh, and because it's a restitution uh, picture, it gives both. I assume a private buyer, but also another institution, a real opportunity to to acquire it. Oh, without question. And you can say the same of that wonderful uh, Egon Schiele restituted townscape, which again did extraordinarily well, um, you know, for a picture of a much more modest scale compared to the other, uh, you know, townscapes and sort of fantastical townscapes uh, he did. 
that was a low estimate of 12, and it made a hammer of over 21 million, which is quite amazing. And I think this speaks to one of my points I, I kept uh, sh shoehorning in earlier on. Uh, you've got a, a very rare type of painting that's never been to market with, uh, you know, a, a powerful story of restitution and quality. And, you know, they're, they're going to sort for all those factors. And again, I, it was clear to me, uh, I, I won't harp on it, that I could see so much activity uh, anecdotally or even observing of people trying to get in to back these works. Uh, and, you know, all those who didn't take them made the right, right choice, you know, when they had three works of this kind of rarity, the Kirshner, the Kokoschka, the Sheila, um, you know, they all had more than enough going for them, uh, you know, and didn't need any backing. Well, I would, I would add to that. They all, uh, uh, when you were talking about the Kokoschka, I mean, it does make you think of the Hartley as well. Uh, and and whatever uh, caused that not to sell, you can see the same kind of thinking. If a if a, a Kokoschka that's never sold anywhere near that figure could do quite well, uh, the the Hartley, which we're told privately there have been pictures, you know, within that realm, uh, you can see the sort of thinking. It might have been a bit of a gamble, but at least you know that thinking is somewhat validated by some of these other performances. Yeah, I, I mean, there were the German Austrian market in general, uh, you know, is, is sort of understood at its top levels, you know, to be very competitive and, and what it could be, you know, collectors like Lauder and Liam Black and many others are real drivers and there are others in the market for them. Now, I also heard of, you know, private sales having taken place for Hartley that were at high figures, you know, maybe that means in the 20s. But standing in the auction rooms and amongst all the talk, most people I spoke to were, you know, a little bit mystified, you know, when they heard that it was in the range of $30 million. There just wasn't, for the audience, I think, enough sense of security and grounding uh, in that kind of price level. And whereas I think there's a very clear uh, identifiable group of people seeking out great German and Austrian expressionist works, as well as faux paintings, those LeBancs and Kandinsky's, uh, you know, it, it seems proven that there isn't that same kind of uh, depth for Hartley. And, uh, you know, unless you're Hopper, maybe, you know, some American artist uh, people just haven't really acclimated to the idea of them being 30 million or more. Well, that lets me get back to the subject I know you want to discuss, because the problem, I think, with the Hartley may have been that it was a direct guarantee uh, without a third party validating the um, price. And so the market was being sent somewhat of a mixed message in that there was a number and it was kind of a uh, a hard and fast number, but it was coming from the auction house, not from uh, uh, someone willing to put up their money and, you know, validate that that price. And we seem to have created over the last, you know, eight or nine years, a market that looks to these third party guarantees 
as a way of signaling that there is indeed a buyer. And even though that might be a disincentive to others to bid, it is reassuring to people in the market that, you know, this isn't just something that uh, is being sort of pushed upon them or they're being sort of forced to uh, make a choice uh, about, but that there's uh, an actual, you know, uh, buyer out there who wants to own it at this price. Yeah, well, and I'll take that in two parts. The latter part, which you said, I'm not so certain that the uh, the third party irrevocable bids necessarily provide assurance because so many of those works, particularly the ones that were consigned with that, and we see the symbols in the catalog, we're, we're often just selling at that bid or one bid above it, which is always something of a curious thing. And it really led to a lot of uh, collectors I spoke to and dealers to really, you know, puzzle at, well, is this the true value of the work? I mean, I guess the true value is what someone's willing to pay for it, but it did allow what I thought were artificially high estimates. And um, I think in many cases that, that was disincentives. Um, But, you know, the flip side is, uh, it, it does single that somebody was willing to pay the price, but it, it is a bit murkier and it's not so straightforward. And I'm not sure all of these equally engender confidence in the market. But one thing, you know, is for certain and is frequently said by the auction houses internally and by by so many. You know, if you are going to bring a, a 30 plus million dollar picture to market. Uh, you basically almost have to have a third party bid. You have to get somebody to start it off or you just have to have it uh, estimated low uh, and, you know, very transparent uh, to make things super competitive and carry it along. The the Van Gogh, uh, you know, they probably couldn't secure a guarantee at that $40 million level. Uh, and, you know, it's arguable whether, you know, it was worth the try and the sale. Um, but you get something, I know it's a, uh, not necessarily our topic, but you get something big and powerful like the Hockney, where the seller picked the bold move of just saying no reserve. Uh, it just, it was a come on, people were going to jump into the market. It was a well-calculated, uh, it was a well-calculated risk. But unless you have somebody really willing to do that, really open it up, uh, I, I think the auctioneers continually believe and learn from certain experiences like the Hartley and the Van Gogh, less costly on the Van Gogh, is these days you have to lock in a bidder uh, if you're going to bring something that valuable to the market. Well, y- you have uh, some experience with things of that value. Uh, and I think the you, raising the Hockney is an interesting uh, case in all of this. I mean, there is a a work that its sale is far out of register of other sales. And of course, there are not very many works from this period that sell. And certainly since Hockney's market has exploded. So you can argue whether what the right price is. And it, it certainly seems that the uh, the announcing that it was a no reserve uh, auction was a signal that there was some resistance, or at least the impression that there was some resistance on bidders' parts to uh, participate 
for whatever uh, reason, being cautious or, or or not, and 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 you know, like the the uh, monk scream that you sold a number of years ago, there's a good chance that this price will remain a bit of an outlier to the rest of Hockney's market. I mean, we'll see going forward whether it has a uh, an effect on the the broader market. Uh, I, certainly, in the case of the monk that you sold for 120 million dollars, the monk market has advanced since then, but not at the same uh, rate that that would have suggested. Uh, the the scream selling at 120 didn't make uh, uh, several other monks now worth and and people tried now worth significantly more than what um, had been paid for them uh, a few years before. Yeah, no, if it's a matured market, you know, an artist that's been appearing for years, you know, the, the single extraordinary sale going above estimate uh, doesn't pull, you know, all the works along with it. Now, if you're in the post-war market years ago, Christopher Wool or, or Carrie James Marshall or any number of these artists where all of a sudden there's a really big leap up in, uh, in, in, in prices against estimates, that will draw it up. People will see that as a as a market ripe for a rise for, you know, uh, speculation, investment, uh, and so on. And Marion, if I may return briefly to the uh, the monk, because uh, when I thought about the Hockney and that strategy, it immediately made me think of not just the the monk we have, the screen, but also the Giacometti bronze of the chariot. And, and what object lessons both of those were about how do you handle a very highly valued work uh, at auction, particularly ones where there's going to be a tremendous amount of speculation, uh, either overconfidence or, or puzzlement about the pricing. So with the monk, the owner had always believed it was worth in excess of $100 million. We did too. Uh, but we went without estimate, and by the day or two before the sale, the owner took the bold move of allowing a, a very relatively low reserve. It allowed all of us to really go out, not just encourage people, but really secure bids and, and get the ball rolling. So then there was a, a natural momentum and a confidence that just took it up and up and up. With the Giacometti chariot, uh, Sotheby's, we'd guaranteed it. Uh, you know, there was some knowledge or talk, maybe it was in the range of $100 million. And then there was so much expectation it would go to 120. I remember the, uh, the bookies in London were laying odds favorable to it making 120. And it, it really psyched out bidders. There were three people there to bid. And when no momentum got going at all when the auctioneer was just calling bid by bid by bid. So obviously not yet having a bid. Uh, it almost, it paralyzed two of the bidders. They felt very uncertain. They were prepared to go high and they were, you know, mystified why it wasn't. And when, and I know he was widely reported as the buyer when, when Steve Cohn, you know, threw his bid in, you know, uh, I was able to raise a hand uh, we were both puzzled why there wasn't any more bidding, but, you know, in that case, he won the day because then the, the pointing man sold for 144 and, uh, I think he, he in retrospect got a bargain, but, you know, 
Well, there were he, two different approaches. He certainly showed that that, that uh, he was willing to go uh, uh, much farther if necessary. And yes, that, that sort of points up the, the dynamics of these uh, kinds of markets where if if no one bids, there's that moment of um, of sort of uh, internal panic. You know, uh, is there something I'm missing? Is there? Uh, and and I think we we saw interestingly enough in the bidding in the evening sales two moments that I can remember, there might have been one or two more, where there was a long, uncomfortable pause before the beginning, the bidding began. And, you know, it's, you can read it whatever you want into to, to that, that sometimes it feels like it's, you know, uh, that panic moment that maybe this isn't worth uh, uh, pursuing. Maybe it's also just the, a certain amount of you know the buyers being on strike and no one wanting to be the first one to make the the, the move on it. It, but it was just interesting that that set kind of the tone uh, of the market that that people were willing to wait. No one felt like they they absolutely had to jump in uh, or would you know uh, miss their chance. Yeah, there's uh, you know just as there's strategies for managing the presentation of the works, uh, there's strategies for bidders. And I think different kinds of property uh, elicits different types of bidding patterns. Uh, the you know estimates or expectations something might go high could sort of inhibit people, make them sit back on their hands. Uh, a work with uh, what's perceived as a very you know, uh, reasonable estimate, again, like the the McGreed and Sotheby's or, you know, some of the well-performing lots at Christie's, people don't even bother to be coy. They, they already sense it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a horse race. Uh, but yeah, it's very, it's very nuanced and it shifts from lot to lot. And, you know, one's heart really goes out sometimes to the auctioneer when, they are trying their best to find that one bid. And, you know, uh, you watch them and you can tell that they are even expecting some of their colleagues on phone banks to bid. They must have had meetings before the sale starts. And I could see, you know, uh, Adrian Meyer or, uh, you know, several of the uh, other auctioneers you see just looking at the phone banks. It's very clear they, you know, they have an expectation a bid might come. But uh, yeah, no matter how much you think you know beforehand, it's it's only going to happen at the moment. Yes, there are, you can always see those moments where the auctioneer will will call a um, specialist by name who has not been participating <laughs> of yet, who is on a telephone, clearly saying, "Hey, you were supposed to bid. What the hell's going on here?" Right. <laughs> but 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 it is. I have to say. Uh, 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 the measure of a really good auctioneer is not the white glove sale, though I'm sure that's that's an achievement and all. It is watching a good auctioneer suffer through uh, a route uh, and maintain their composure, keep the the thing moving along, and not display the the kind of panic that any mere mortal uh, would feel, being you know the center of attention, uh, having this thing rest upon them. And all, and and though I, I guess you wouldn't wish that on anyone. It it really is always kind of fascinating to to watch when when someone sort of uh, uh, toughs it out through a, a hard sale uh, and manages all all of those various pressures. And that's where their metal is really tested. And you know, if the sale's going to do great, 
you know, uh, the auctioneer's job's a lot easier. You know, he's just got to keep his increments straight and sort of main control. But when you hit these uh, pieces that you either expect to be problematic or you're surprised on the spot that they're problematic, you really got to, you, you just can't signal the fear. You've got to maintain a pace. You've got to maintain a sense of feeling confident and expecting the work. Again, I think Adrian did a wonderful job. UC does, Ali Barker uh, does, but it takes a lot of time in that rostrum. And, uh, you know, even though everyone, you know, wishes to sometimes have that, that star turn to be the center of the, uh, of the, of the goings on, uh, there's a lot of unenviable moments, you know, an auctioneer has to work their way through. Well, on that um, note, uh, with the pep talk about uh, uh, surviving adversity, uh, I think that's a, a, a good place to, to stop. David, thank you for uh, giving us a lesson in moral courage. Well, uh, Marion, it is always a pleasure. I always look forward to our uh, post-sale wrap-ups. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 